top stories in Africa rise and shine at this hour. South Africa says its mediation role in Zimbabwe has ended and Somalia and Kenya battle polio outbreak. In economic SADC leaders urge to invest in their own people and in sports news, Kenya's top Africa's medal table at the World Athletics Championships. But first, here's Tracy Bumgard with the news. Thank you, Lulu. South Africa's Paralympic champion Oscar Pistorius will be back in court today. The prosecution has finished gathering its evidence and will serve the athlete with an indictment for the premeditated murder of his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, on Valentine's Day earlier this year. Today would have been Steenkamp's 30th birthday. The 26-year-old double amputee will be indicted on a main charge of premeditated murder. The trial in the High Court in Pretoria is expected to start in March 2014, but the exact date will be set today. The prosecuting team says additional charges may be added. Spokesperson for the Pistorius family, Annalise Burgess. The Pistorius family does not wish to comment on any aspects of this court case before the next court appearance. In our view, the correct place for any information relating to charges or witnesses or any other aspects pertaining to this or any other legal case is in a court of law. All relevant information will be brought to the court on this day by the legal teams. We do not want to be drawing to commenting on any aspects before then. This case should be played out in court. That is the correct forum. Egyptian authorities have ordered hospital personnel to record some of the deaths of those with gunshot wounds as suicides. 38 prisoners died from tear gas suffocation during a riot in a prison near the capital Cairo yesterday. At least 830 people have died in clashes with the army since Wednesday. Mel Frickberg has more. Around 38 supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood died on Sunday in a riot at an Egyptian prison on the outskirts of Cairo. Egypt's interior ministry said a group of detainees had tried to escape from the prison, adding that an undisclosed number had been suffocated by tear gas when police moved in to free an officer who had been taken hostage. Skeptics allege a possible mass execution took place. The death toll now stands at over 800 since Wednesday, following clashes between Islamists and security forces. Egyptian authorities say 70 members of the security forces have been killed. South African President Jacob Zuma has conceded that South Africa's just-ended mediation in the Zimbabwean question was not an easy task. He was speaking at the end of the 33rd session of the SADC summit in Malawi. The two-day meeting reflected on the conclusion of the global political agreement in Zimbabwe, which led to elections in that country. SADC appointed Pretoria to facilitate in the Zimbabwe crisis following that country's 2008 disputed elections. President Zuma says it was a difficult mission. We were given a task as a country immediately after the troublesome elections of 2008 uh, we dealt with it. It was not an easy one. We took the whole term to deal with it. It was not an easy one. But I think we succeeded. As you know, Sadak delivered the peaceful, free elections. There was no violence that you saw in 2008, this time around. Banda takes over from President Armando Gubuza of Mozambique. Gubuza has urged his peers to support Joyce Banda in her new role. To you, my dear sister Joyce Bander, we are not only giving the chairmanship of SADC, but also, and above all, our commitment 
that we will support you in every possible way as you lead the destiny of our organization. I would like to affirm that I am convinced that we will all be providing exactly the same support to the new chair of SADC, Her Excellency President Joyce Banda. Former rebel leader Michael Jododia has been formally sworn in as the Central African Republic's president. He will start the clock on his interim administration's 18-month deadline to restore order and organize elections. Jotodia has been in charge of the country during the chaos that followed the rebel seizure of control in March. The rebels swept into power from their northern bases, overpowering South African forces that were protecting former leader Francois Bozizé. Regional decision-makers such as Chad's President Idris Deby and Congo Republic's President Denis Sassou Nguiso attended the swearing-in ceremony which marked the official transfer of power. Joe listening to Africa Rise and Shine with Lulu Gabu. Thank you, Tracy. In our top story, South African President Jacob Zuma says his mediation role in Zimbabwe has now ended following the holding of elections in that country. He was speaking to Channel Africa at the end of the 33rd SADC summit, which ended in the Malawian capital Lilongwe last night. The two-day meeting was called to discuss politics, defense and security in the region with a reflection on the outcomes of the recently concluded Zimbabwean elections on the agenda. Our presidential correspondent in Debo Mukobo spoke to the president on his mediation role in Harare and filed this report. South Africa and the former president Tabumpeki was appointed by the Sadak region to facilitate in the Zimbabwean crisis following that country's disputed elections in 2008. Mbeki's mediation role led to the adoption of the global political agreement which sought to bring together all warring parties in that country and draft a new constitution to democratic elections. And after becoming the head of state in 2009, President Jacob Zuma continued with the country's mediation role in Zimbabwe. Zuma, together with his team that included Ambassadors Charles Ngakula and Lindy Wezulu, spent almost the rest of his term helping Zimbabweans to find each other. And the president concedes it was not an easy task. We were given a task as a country immediately after the troublesome elections of 2008. Uh, we dealt with it. It was not an easy one. We took the whole term to deal with it. It was not an easy one. But I think we succeeded. As you know, Sadak delivered the peaceful, free elections. There was no violence that you saw in 2008, this time around. Uh, you would also be aware that uh, the former Prime Minister Morgan Tsangarai made a challenge because he felt that things did not go very well, but he withdrew it. With the conclusion of the electoral process which saw President Robert Mugabe given the seventh term to lead the Southern African country, President Zuma said their mediation role has now come to an end. The matter has been closed. We have done our bit to ensure that Zimbabwe firstly had a new constitution which was important to show the way how to conduct elections under what conditions. And to me, what was more important that the political parties, all of them, preached peace during the elections and the people actually responded. And that concludes the matters on Zimbabwe. There is no other matter to look at. Ours was to mediate, help them, to ensure that we deliver the elections that must produce democratically a government. And that's what has happened. There's nothing that we'll have to go to Zimbabwe and do again. And his peers from the Sadak region are happy. 
Chairperson of the Regional Body and Malawian President Joyce Banda. The summit has noted the progress made in Zimbabwe under the Global Political Agreement signed in September 2008 and commended the successful referendum of the new constitution in March 2013, as well as the peaceful conduct of the harmonized elections of 31st July 2013. On behalf of Sadiq, I wish to commend His Excellency Jacob Zuma and the South African government for their leadership in guiding the implementation of the global political agreement in Zimbabwe. The meeting also reflected on the DRC and Madagascar with renewed fighting between the DRC National Army and the M23 rebel group which saw almost a million people being displaced. Sadak leaders have urged Congolese to meet and resolve their problem. Dr. Thomas Salamau is the outgoing Sadak Secretariat. Summit commended the Kampala talks between the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo and M23 and noted that the talks have become protracted and that at some point a reasonable deadline should be considered. Summit urged all Congolese stakeholders to participate in inclusive national consultations in order to find a lasting political solution. Summit emphasized the need to hold an urgent joint summit of SADC and the International Conference on the Great Lakes region. Meanwhile, regional leaders have also shown their commitment to the empowerment of women with the election of President Joyce Banda as the first woman to lead the SADC region since its formation. Again, they appointed another woman, Dr. Stegomena Tex, to lead the SADC Secretariat. The next SADC summit will be in Zimbabwe in the next 12 months when President Robert Mugabe will take the reins to lead the regional body. Ntebu Mokobo Tililongwe in Malawi. A fresh political crisis has emerged in Zimbabwe following the withdrawal of election results challenged by MDC leader Morgan Tangurai over the weekend. The MDC says efforts to receive fair trial in Zimbabwean courts have been frustrated. Tangurai said his party would pursue democratic and peaceful channels to get justice. Simon Muchemwa has more. As heads of states from the Southern African bloc, were whining and dining in the Malawian capital, Lilongwe, unsure whether to discuss the Zimbabwean elections, a fresh crisis emerged. Back in Harare, the outgoing prime minister and leader of the opposition, Morgan Changrai, withdrew his election results challenge a few hours before the constitutional court could hear the matter. Malawian leader Joyce Banda, who has now assumed chairmanship of the SADC, congratulated President Robert Mugabe for conducting peaceful elections. This led to the endorsement of disputed elections in Zimbabwe by SADC, despite dissenting voices by Botswana leader Ian Kama and outgoing SADC chairman and Mozambican leader Armando Gebuza. Meanwhile, MDC leader Morgan Changrai said Friday he had withdrawn a legal challenge to the elections, claiming he had been frustrated from getting a fair trial by the Zimbabwean courts. His party spokesperson, Douglas Monzora, said, Yes, the party has withdrawn principally for three reasons. The first one was that all the material that we were waiting for uh, uh, has not been brought to us. This is the material in the possession of ZEC, which to do with the elections. The, the judgment that we are waiting for in the electoral court has not been done, and it's just a few hours before argument. Number two, um, we have not been allowed, we have now been told that we cannot lead oral evidence in the constitutional court, and therefore our, our 
our plan to bring the people of Zimbabwe who have been violated to come and testify um, cannot work. Um, then number three, President Mugabe said at Euros Day that uh, there was not going to be overturning uh, of um, uh, the election result, and he said that in the presence of the Chief Justice and other judges of the Constitutional Court who are going to hear this case. So we are not going to proceed uh, because this is just uh, uh, rubber stamping, this is just uh, play acting, uh, and we don't want to take Zimbabweans for granted. We don't want to be taken for granted either. The poor challenge with the draw by Changrai removes the last hurdle by the 89-year-old Zimbabwean leader since independence in 1980 to be inaugurated for the seventh term. Monzora said utterances by Robert Mugabe last week during the commemorations of the fallen heroes is an indication his party was fighting a losing battle. Well, Zimbabwe, uh, the, the MDC is a, is a peaceful political party that follows the law. Our aim is to take over governmental power through democratic, peaceful, and, and, and non-violent means, constitutional means. Uh, democratic means that we are not going to be violent, we are going to pursue our, our, our struggle in a democratic and peaceful manner. The SADC observation mission for the July 31 election judged the vote was free but yet to comment on its fairness. The Continental Observation Mission, AU, also shared the same observation. Despite all this, MDC is hopeful SADC will give them audience. We have availed to the SADC leadership the dossier of what went wrong in Zimbabwe. We are expecting justice from SADC. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Philanthropist Mo Ibrahim says Africa faces a serious deficit in leadership and he says South Africa must step up to its expected role to lead the continent. Ibrahim was speaking at the annual Nelson Mandela Lecture in Pretoria. His theme was social cohesion. Matlazi Gallens reports. Mo Ibrahim focused on the continent while also narrowing in on South Africa's challenges, and there were plenty. He painted a country battling to deal with land, equality, and failing to lead the continent, all crucial for social cohesion, he said. He warned African leaders of failing to deal with the tsunami of youth unemployment. Half of Africa's population is below 19 years. Millions of people without, young people without jobs, and more important, without hope, is a major problem. If it happened, lock up your doors and call out the army. That is the bleak future we're going to face. He slated South Africa for failing to deal with land redistribution almost two decades after the dawn of democracy. He says with the willing seller, willing buyer policy having failed, government has to be courageous and find an alternative within the confine of the constitution. Another danger to social cohesion he highlighted was the failure to narrow the gap between the rich and poor. This is the least equitable country in the world, in the whole world. To understand that the least equitable country in, 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 in the whole world and only legitimate for us to ask after 20 years of independence what exactly is going on here why why why, why is that that's a real challenge we think our friends here in South Africa really 
they need to face up to it. South Africa's role in leading the continent also came under scrutiny. He says the country is not doing the job of leading Africa socially, economically and culturally. He says there is a leadership deficit. He highlighted what many consider great achievements in foreign policies as not a good measure of the most developed country leading the continent. Leadership is not about bossing people around. Leadership is not about securing a seat in the Security Council on behalf of Africa or, or chairing the African Union. The leadership we're looking for is a true engagement with Africa. We need a coherent voice for Africa and that coherent voice you can really help formulate. That leadership deficit, he says, applies across the continent. He criticized the average age of African presidents, while the world's largest superpower, America's presidents, are much younger. He singled out Zimbabwe's president, Robert Mugabe, who was re-elected for a seventh term. Here, we have somebody in the neighbor country, at 90 years old, about to start a new term. So what is, what is wrong with us? Mo Ibrahim leads his foundation encouraging governance in Africa and it also releases the Mo Ibrahim Index that evaluates individual countries' performance. In 2007, he started the Mo Ibrahim Prize for Achievement in African Leadership, awarding 5 million rand to African heads of states that have improved the lives of their citizens. Mahlatze Gallens, Victoria. The international lobby group Human Rights Watch has expressed concern over the ousting of the leadership of the Rwandan League for the promotion and defense of human rights, saying the move is due to the leadership's independent stance. The rights group says the Rwandan organization known as Liprador is the country's last effective human rights group. People believed to be favorable to the government are reported to have now taken over the organization. Human Rights Watch further says this has become a typical state tactic to silence human rights defenders. Selina Dobong reports. On the 21st of July, a small number of members of the Rwandan League for the Promotion and Defense of Human Rights organized a meeting which voted in a new board. The action violated the organization's rules and the national law on non-governmental organizations. Human Rights Watch says several members of the ousted board are known for their independence and courage in denouncing state abuses. On July the 24th, the Rwanda Governance Board, the state body with oversight of national non-governmental groups, wrote a letter to the organization taking note of the decision and recognizing the new board. The executive director of Human Rights Watch's Africa Desk, Daniel Bekele, elaborates. This meeting, which was convened in an unlawful way, ended by voting out the existing independent leaders of the organization and replacing them with uh, new board members who are believed to be very favorable to the government. So it is a typical case of... Uh, takeover of an independent organization in, in a very unlawful way, which is a manifestation of how independent-minded leaders of civil society organizations are being silenced by such kind of move. Because the leadership has been replaced by people that are now believed to be very favorable to the authorities,
this will seriously undermine and compromise the autonomy and independence of the organization, which will also be affecting the the independent kind of reports and investigation and strong independent human rights voice used to make in the past. So it is worrying that we will probably not have an independent organization which will serve as the voices of human rights victims and human rights services which have the courage and independence to independently investigate and report about human rights abuses in Rwanda. According to Human Rights Watch, Rwanda's domestic human rights movement has been almost destroyed by a combination of state intimidation, threats, manipulation, infiltration and administrative obstacles. Most leading human rights activists have fled the country. The organization says government's actions to silence human rights groups are part of a broader pattern of intolerance of criticism, which extends to independent journalists and opposition parties. It has documented a similar pattern of government tactics against opposition parties. Back to Daniel Bekele. There has been a history of political organizations being infiltrated, independent news media outlets being infiltrated and being closed down, journalists being arrested, opposition political party uh, activists being harassed and uh, some even being uh, killed in a mysterious way. The overall space for civil society organizations not being supportive and conducive for independent organizations to be formed and to operate. Perhaps the most uh, uh, recent development of the registration of the opposition Green Party is one good news that has come out of Rwanda, except that that registration of the opposition group came only a few weeks before the parliamentary election in September, which was uh, also the reason why the Green Party has now said that it will not be able to participate in the election because it is such a short time frame. So we are looking at this in context in terms of what we have of repressive measures and attacks against civil society leaders, journalists and opposition party members and leaders in the past. Human Rights Watch also says the Rwandan governance board's swift recognition of the outcome of the meeting without investigating the concerns of the group's ousted leadership raises legitimate questions about the government body's motivation. The rights group says the board should set aside its decision, insisting that Rwandan law and Liprador statutes are observed and allow human rights organizations to work freely. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ntobong. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Today marks 10 years since the United Nations headquarters in Baghdad was bombed and the UN lost 22 of its staff and humanitarian agency workers. World Humanitarian Day is the day designated by the UN General Assembly to coincide with the anniversary of the Baghdad bombing to pay tribute to all the aid workers around the world who lost their lives in carrying out their duties. On this day, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCA, kicks off a month-long project to literally turn words into currency through social media and other outlets to help millions of people in need around the world. Archer's Matthew Cochrane, the spokesperson for the World Needs More campaign, explains to UN Radio's Don Bob what the project is all about. 
Well, I think everyone remembers last year. I think everyone remembers Beyonce's amazing performance in the General Assembly and the fact that the UN and international humanitarian community reached a billion people. I mean, it's an unprecedented figure. It's an unfathomable figure. And it was really exciting. And everyone was really proud of what happened. But it also raised some really interesting questions about what social media and people sharing or liking something on social media, about what that actually means. And there's a lot of cynicism about that. We're not cynical about it. We think that there's real value in that. So what we've tried to do this year is try and find a way to take words in social media, to take those kind of impressions and turn it into real aid for real people. And that's really the essence of what we're trying to do this year. And how are you going to go about that? So our campaign is called The World Needs More. The centrepiece of it is our website, worldhumanitarianday.org. And what we've done is we've created what we believe is the world's first marketplace for words. We're working with major companies around the world and philanthropists to sponsor words. For example, a company might sponsor the word action or inclusion or equality, whatever they think the world needs more of. And then every time someone shares that word through Twitter, through the hashtag, the world needs more, and then hashtag the word, a dollar of that sponsorship amount is released. And that money then goes to the UN Foundation and through them to an emergency response fund in one of the world's most underfunded crises. Okay, but how would one put that into reality in terms of, would you be making a sentence out of it or something? There's a number of ways people can contribute. They can go to the website, uh, worldhumanitarianday.org, and then they can very easily share a word. They can see what we're calling the word cloud, where all the different words that are trending, people can click on them and decide to share it. They can tweet it. Every time someone tweets or retweets a word that's sponsored, that unlocks money. Or they can SMS it. We'll be releasing an SMS number that can be used around the world. We'll gather all that information and then we can look at the different trends. What are people talking about? What do people think the world needs more of? So is the campaign just about fundraising? I mean, from an individual perspective, or are you hoping to have probably corporations or businesses involved? Yeah, the centerpiece is we're reaching out to major companies around the world and asking them to sponsor words. So, for example, Barclays Bank is on board. Gucci is on board as well. We're encouraging individuals to share any word that they think. It doesn't have to be sponsored. People are free to sponsor their own words, to put money behind their own words and share it amongst their different networks. So it's very much about fundraising, but it's not just about fundraising. It's also about raising awareness about World Humanitarian Day and major humanitarian issues. And also seeing if we can have an interesting dialogue start between the public, people on social media and the humanitarian community and the private sector. I think this is the really exciting part of the campaign to see how it unfolds over a month, to see what words trend and what companies decide to respond to those trends and to sponsor. What would be the centerpiece of this campaign? Well, the centerpiece is the website. It's a fantastic site and we encourage people to go there. But we've also got some really exciting content that's coming out. There's a wonderful little film that's been released by Kid President, who is one of the major supporters of World Humanitarian Day. He's one of the public faces of the day and of the campaign. And in the video, he's encouraging or reaching out to Beyonce, asking her to take part in the campaign. So we've got some exciting new pieces coming out. Kid President does get his interview with Beyonce. He also meets with our Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, and with our Under Secretary General, Valerie Amos. So there's really exciting, different content coming out that's reaching out to different audiences, audiences that perhaps we in the UN don't often reach out to and don't always engage with. So that's really exciting. When is the campaign being officially launched? The website will be live from the 16th of August, but the launch really is on World Humanitarian Day on Monday, the 19th of August. And how long would this campaign be going on for? The campaign runs through until the 
Social Good Summit, which is the 22nd to the 24th of September. So it's a month-long campaign, and it's a chance to really see how people engage with it, how the private sector engages with it, how humanitarian organisations engage with it, and see what can be achieved over that month-long period. People are going to hear this on the radio. They're going to read about it on the web. How can they get involved? The first thing to do is to think, what do you think the world needs more of? And I think that's a really powerful question. It's an interesting point to reflect on. And then the next thing to do is to jump online and go to worldhumanitarianday.org and start talking about this, start sharing about this, start engaging with the campaign and join us on this journey. And let's see where we can take this and let's see what comes from this over the next month. One final question, Matthew. What are your expectations for the outcome? We're optimistic that the public, the private sector, our humanitarian partners will really get behind this campaign. They already are. We're already seeing so much excitement about it. In terms of what success looks like, we don't know. We really hope that the private sector and the general public and humanitarian partners continue to get behind this. They're really very, very excited already, and that's fantastic. We think it's going to be a real success, but we're really excited to see what happens over the coming days and weeks. That was Matthew Cochran from the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs talking to UN Radio's Don Bob. We now cross over to Tracy Boomgaard for the headlines. Thank you, Lulu. There's a hive of activity outside South Africa's Pretoria Magistrates Court ahead of murder-accused Olympian Oscar Pistorius's appearance. Egyptian authorities have ordered hospital personnel to record some of the deaths of those with gunshot wounds as suicides. And there is mounting concern about the apparent inability of Mozambican authorities to act against poachers who continue to slaughter rhinos and elephants in South Africa. These and other stories at the top of the hour. Thank you, Tracy. Public hearings into alleged fraud and corruption in South Africa's multi-billion dollar arms deal are due to start in Pretoria today. This after the Arms Procurement Commission, headed by Judge Willy Siriti, was postponed earlier this month in order to sort out the declassification of documents and the composition of the commission. President Jacob Zuma appointed the commission in 2011 to look into the controversial 1999 arms deal. The commission has since seen a series of setbacks, including the resignations of two senior staff members and the 11th hour departure of one of the commissioners, Judge Francis Lechodi. While the arms deal commission insists that it is ready to proceed, concerns about its credibility continue to surface. Sandra Delanga reports. The Arms Deal Commission will continue as a two-person commission while President Jacob Zuma considers the appointment of a third member. This after one of its commissioners, Judge Francis Lahori, resigned shortly before the hearings were due to start earlier this month. Commission spokesperson William Baloy. Firstly, it was the technicality around the quorum of whether the two judges can proceed instead of three So later on, that has been resolved because the president then issued a presidential minute to indicate that the commission can proceed 
with two commissioners as proceeding officers. Malloy says the sorting of more than 3.4 million pages of arms deal evidence will not have an impact on the first phase of the commission. It was earlier revealed that the documents are being stored in shipping containers at the Hawks headquarters in Pretoria. The documents that were referred as to have been untouched are documents that deals with terms reference 5 and 6, which we are not yet at their stage. But also we have gone on out to call on the service providers that are going to scan the documents that were not attended to so that those documents can be in the possession of the Commission in electronic format. Earlier, the Department of Defence indicated that it was not ready to proceed as it was still in the process of declassifying documents. But Lois says it seems the department will be in the position to proceed. The Commission's evidence leaders have been in consultations with the members of the South African Defence Force and Military Veterans for the past two weeks. And it is our resolve that issues that were prohibiting the proceedings in terms of the documentation has received the attention that it warrants and we think that we will be able to proceed. Department of Defence spokesperson Sapiri Lamini reacted by only saying that the department will raise any outstanding issues with the commission if necessary. Meanwhile, an independent political analyst, Shadra Guto, says the decision to continue with only two commissioners has raised serious questions about the credibility and the functioning of the commission. It is up to the commission to demonstrate that despite all of that, the commission being downscaled to two instead of three commissioners, the whole question of resignation of some key members of staff, and also the question comes of reference because we are dealing here with a situation where the president is in one way or another part of those who are being investigated. So you have the person who is investigated setting the terms and choosing who is going to be in the commission. There's a lot of doubt and the commission has to do extraordinary work to win public confidence. He added that the declassification of documents remains a concern. You may be dealing with partial inquiry which does not get to the bottom of the problem because the bottom of the problem is represented in the evidence that is classified. So it is a major, major problem, and I pity that commission at this particular moment. Arms Deal Commission spokesperson William Balois says Judge Willie Sariti will open the commission with a statement. That would be followed by the evidence leaders outlining the processes, and then we'll break for lunch, and they come again, but only the legal teams will meet then at two to iron out whatever issues that might have been raised. The first witness from the Department of Defense and Military Veterans is expected to take the stand on Tuesday, the 20th of August. Paloy could not confirm who the first witness will be, but it is expected that the first round of testimony will be that of Defence Force officials who will have to shed light on government's expensive choice of weapons, ships and aircraft. Sandra De Lange, Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
There's an explosive polio outbreak in Somalia where 105 cases have been confirmed. It has also spread to neighboring Kenya with 12 cases confirmed, according to Oliver Rosenbauer, the spokesperson for the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. There are three polio endemic countries worldwide, Nigeria, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Rosenbauer explained that Somalia and Kenya are not considered endemic as the outbreak was caused by an import of the virus that reinfected these areas, noting that Somalia has been polio-free for six or seven years. He warned that this is by far the biggest outbreak and is a pretty dangerous one, putting the populations across the Horn of Africa at risk. He noted that outbreak response activities have been ongoing to protect the population since May 2013 when it was first reported. Rosenbauer discussed the severity of the situation with UN Radio's Patrick Maigua in Geneva. Somalia is facing an outbreak of polio at the moment. About 100 cases have been confirmed in Somalia, primarily centered around the Banadir region. The outbreak has also spread into neighboring Kenya in the Dadaab refugee camp area with 12 cases confirmed there. It's a pretty dangerous outbreak and that's why outbreak response activities have been ongoing pretty much since May with immunization campaigns and so forth to try to protect the populations against this outbreak at the moment. The latest information we have is that about 4 million people have been vaccinated since then but the virus still continues to spread. Are there issues that are making it difficult to contain this outbreak? There's a few things. Number one, there's a lot of population movement right across the Horn of Africa and so because it's a communicable disease, people as they travel can bring the virus and the disease with them to reinfect other areas. So that's a challenge that complicates the outbreak response activities. The other thing is that this is a vaccine which one dose is not quite enough to offer full protection. So you need several doses to be administered to be fully protected and they need to be given at certain intervals and that's why numerous rounds of immunization campaigns are actually needed. And so the impact of the outbreak response activities won't be seen for some time yet. That's nothing unusual usual, nor is it surprising. This is kind of how outbreaks tend to kind of peak and then start to go down after a few months that we've seen elsewhere in the world as well. What's important is to make sure that we have the full engagement of all community leaders, of all religious leaders, to make sure that acceptance for the vaccinations are high, that vaccinators can reach all areas, and for the most part, community engagement is very strong, which is very encouraging. But it is a serious situation. The virus keeps spreading to new areas and populations right across the Horn of Africa are at the moment at risk of this outbreak. There is also the issue of insecurity in Somalia. Is this affecting the immunization campaigns? It complicates things for sure. There's areas of Somalia where access to all populations is much more difficult, is compromised. So obviously the immunity gap in those areas of the populations is much lower. There's efforts underway to try to increase the immunity levels in those areas as well, including to vaccinate as people come in and out of those areas. Is the vaccination campaigns only targeting children or do you also target adults? The primary target age group is always children under the age of five years. Those are the ones who are most at risk because they haven't received enough doses yet. However, in a situation like this, particularly as Somalia had been polio-free for six or seven years, 
because we're immunizing older age groups as well, including adults in some areas. Are you worried that the outbreak is likely to become explosive and hard to contain? This is an explosive outbreak. This is by far the biggest outbreak that we have worldwide. There are three endemic countries that we don't consider Somalia and Kenya endemic because it's not endemic disease that caused this outbreak. It was an importation. These areas were reinfected. The endemic areas are Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. But we're not seeing nearly as many cases in those endemic areas as we're seeing in this outbreak area in the Horn of Africa. So for sure, it's an explosive outbreak already that we are seeing. And of course, we are worried that we will continue to see more cases and that we will continue to see other areas of the Horn of Africa also become reinfected. And that's a real danger. That's why outbreak response can't be just limited to the infected areas of Somalia and Kenya. It must be broader than that. Ethiopia, Yemen, other areas of Kenya, which are polio-free, need to also conduct immunization activities. And those efforts are also underway. How are you engaging the governments in the region to make sure they are prepared and to make sure vaccine campaigns are undertaken effectively. So all governments were immediately informed back in May when this outbreak was confirmed that they are at risk. A surveillance alert was issued right across the Horn of Africa and the governments activated their active disease surveillance to look for any potential cases. The faster that you can detect a polio case, the more fast you can respond to it with an immunization campaign and the less the consequences are, meaning that your outbreak will be contained faster, fewer cases and, and so forth. So that's already happened. At the same time, countries, Ethiopia, Yemen, polio-free areas of Kenya are conducting immunization campaigns, particularly focusing on areas where they know that they've got immunity gaps. So on population areas, which are either in direct contact with the reinfected areas, so a lot of population movements with South Central Somalia, for example, or in areas where they know that there are population subgroups which might be not so well immunized and to try to boost immunity levels in those populations. That was Oliver Rosenbauer, the spokesperson for the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, talking to UN Radio's Patrick Maigua. South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius will appear briefly in the Pretoria Magistrates Court today on a charge of murdering his girlfriend, Riva Stienkamp. What was supposed to be a celebration of the model's 30th birthday today will now once again be a media frenzy at court where her boyfriend and killer Pistorius will appear. Stienkamp was shot dead in Pistorius' house in the Silverwoods estate in Pretoria on Valentine's Day this year. Pistorius is facing charges of premeditated murder and the illegal possession of ammunition. Even though reports have circulated late last week that Pistorius may be charged with two further charges of the reckless firing of a firearm, it could not be confirmed. Lila Machnas reports. A huge media contingent is again expected at the Pretoria Magistrates Court when Pistorius will appear on a charge of premeditated murder. The state is expected to hand over the final indictment to Pistorius' legal team. This will clarify what the state is charging Pistorius with after rumours that two additional charges will be added to the charge sheet circulated by the end of last week. Pistorius was initially charged with premeditated murder and the illegal possession of ammunition. Late last week, rumours started circulating that two additional charges of recklessly firing a firearm will be added. Madubisi Masiku of the National Prosecuting Authority says they will not comment on the media reports. 
Spokesperson for the Pistorius family, Annalisa Burgess, says they cannot comment on the possibility of more charges being added to the charge sheet. The Pistorius family does not wish to comment on any aspects of this court case before the next court appearance. In our view, the correct place for any information relating to charges or witnesses or any other aspects pertaining to this or any other legal case is in a court of law. She says the case cannot be tried in the media. We are all well aware that there is a court date scheduled for and all relevant information will be brought to the court on this day by the legal teams. We do not want to be drawing to commenting on any aspects before then. This case should be played out in court. That is the correct forum. Pistorius' lawyer, Kenny Aldrich, says they will have the opportunity to make presentations to the National Prosecuting Authority before more charges will be added to the charge sheet. He says charges can be added even after the final indictment has been handed over to Pistorius' legal team. The two additional charges relate to two separate incidents. The first is where Pistorius allegedly fired a gun through a sunroof of a car while travelling on the highway, and the second where he allegedly fired a gun by accident under a table in the Tasha's restaurant in the Maurice Arch in Johannesburg. In an affidavit Pistorius handed in during his bail application, he admitted that he fired the gun through the toilet door as he thought a burglar was hiding behind the door. He only realized Steenkamp was not in the bedroom after he fired the shots and broke down the toilet door to find her. He carried her downstairs to take her to hospital, but she died in his arms. Today would have been Steenkamp's 30th birthday. It is expected that the trial will start in the North Gauteng High Court in March next year. Lila Magnus, Pretoria. We now cross over to Wisani Matebula for our economics news. Thanks, Lulu. Chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Nkosa Zanatlamini Zuma, has urged Sadek leaders to invest in their own people for the development of the region. She was speaking at the 33rd Sadek Summit in Lilongwe, Malawi. Lamini Zuma shared the stage with incoming Sadek Chair, Malawian President Joyce Banda. She says Africa and the region will not succeed if they don't invest in their women. It is an undisputable fact that Africa cannot develop to its full potential if it does not include women in all areas of human endeavor. The empowerment of women and girls and the implementation of the commitments of the AU and SADC protocols are therefore a responsibility of us all. We must indeed invest in our most precious resource, our people. We need them to bring the infrastructure, social, human development programs and unleash the potential of half of our population. More than 30,000 assembly line workers in South Africa's motor manufacturing industry are expected to down tools today. This after which talks between the seven biggest manufacturers and metal workers union NUMSA deadlocked. NUMSA is demanding a 14% pay increase while employers are offering between 75 and 8.5%. The motor industry dependent Eastern Cape province of South Africa with its three manufacturers, Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz and General Motors is expected to be hard hit. Kevin Hasler, CEO of the Nelson Mandela Bay Business Chamber. The concern always around the automotive trade is that it's an anchor industry in the Nelson Mandela Bay region. 
and parts of the Eastern Cape, even East London. And strike right now is threat, obviously, to production, as well as delivery against orders, both local and international orders. If the strike continues for a protracted period, obviously the greater the detriment would be to not only the businesses themselves, but to the economy as a whole. I think at this point in time, South Africa is being affected quite strongly with a lack of confidence by both business and foreign investors. And so this does not bode well, once again, for building confidence in the international markets. Meanwhile, South African Metal Workers Union, NUMSA, has stressed that the 14% salary increase that workers in the motor manufacturing industry are demanding is totally justified. NUMSA General Secretary Ivan Jim. Half of workers in this country, they are below the median. And these workers in the auto sector, they are just the one who are breaking a little bit out of that ceiling. As a result, they carry the burden of many who do not work in terms of poverty, unemployment and inequalities. And we think that the demands we're putting on the table and um, persuading employers are really justified. Nigeria's consumer inflation rose to 8.7% year-on-year in July, slightly higher than June's figure of 8.4%, buoyed by higher food prices as the country entered the harvesting season for staple crops. Food inflation increased to 10% year-on-year from 9.6% in June. The inflation rate in Africa's second biggest economy has been on a downward trend this year and settled at a five-year low in June. Despite good inflation numbers, Central Bank Governor Lamido Sanusi has resisted pressure from businesses to slash rates and the uh, commodities uh, news the london copper prices eased as the uh, markets uh, waited for more clues on when the u.s federal reserve may trim its commodity friendly stimulus after climbing for three of the past four weeks on evidence of resilient growth in china and a weaker dollar copper prices have found support ahead of a seasonally stronger period for demand in top consumer china Financial indicators, the US dollar trading at 10.8 to the South African rand at 8.75 Botswana Pules and 5.65 Zambian Kwaches. It's also trading at 0.65 to the British pound and 0.76 to the euro. Commodities, platinum $1,517, gold $1,380, and uh, the price of brand crude oil remains unchanged at $111.95 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Thank you, Wisani. We now cross over to Figile Lingwati for our sports news. Now, sports update this hour. Kenya had the best team among all African countries competing at the World Athletics Championships, which ended in the Russian capital in Moscow yesterday. Our correspondent Geshe Minyati reports. The Kenyan team finished fourth overall with a total of 12 medals, five gold, four silver and three bronze. They were quite strong in long track events, but one of their field athletic Julius Yego nearly made a good piece of history by winning a medal in the men's javelin throw. Yego was denied a bronze medal by Dmitry Tarabin of Russia who had a better throw in their last round. Ethiopia were the second best country on the continent finishing 6th overall with 10 medals, 3 gold, 3 silver and 4 bronze. 
Ivory Coast won two medals through Maril Ahore in the women's 100 and 200 meter races. Blessing Okagbare won two medals for Nigeria, a silver in the women's long jump and a bronze in the 100 meters. The other countries who won one medal apiece were Uganda through Stephen Kuprotich in the men's marathon, Amantle Moncho of Botswana, a silver in the women's 800 meters, Ailene Sulaiman of Djibouti, a silver medal in the men's 10,000 meters, and Johan Cronier of South Africa, a bronze in the men's 1,500 meters. The host country, Russia, had the most number of medals, finishing at the top with 17 medals, followed by Team USA and Jamaica. Geshom Nyati, Channel Africa Sports, London. On to football news. Despite making history and becoming the first team in the continent to beat Egyptian giants Al-Ali and Zamalek in two consecutive games, South African Premiership side Orlando Pirates coach Roger Desai has reminded his charges that they have not achieved anything yet. Saturday's 4-1 drubbing of Zamalek at Orlando Stadium saw Pirates opening a three-point lead at the top of the African Champions League Group A. Desai says qualification for the semi-finals is not a certainty yet. I wasn't aware that uh, we're the first team to beat you know, the two different teams, but I think we got to remember that we haven't won anything. You know, yeah, we won the two matches, but we, we still might not qualify for the next round. We've still got a long way to go. I think that's important that we, we know that. Al-Ali registered their first win in the group stages, beating Congolese side AC Leopards 1-0 away on Saturday. Pirates are now left with three games in the group stages. Their next two matches are away to Zamalek on the 1st of September and AC Leopards on the 14th of September before closing at home against Al-Ali on the 21st of September. Disa says because all the teams will be going all out to get points, he's expecting open games. Going away now for two games and you know, going to Leopards in the last game and now we've got to visit uh, Egypt to play Zamalek and host Al-Ali. You know, it's important that we keep playing the, the way we've been playing. We're not going to change too much. The nice thing about it is that both teams will come at us. You know, and we play a lot better when teams open up and, and also want to win the game. When teams are very cagey, like you saw Leopards, they came out for a point, they celebrated afterwards. You know, it's, we find it difficult to break those teams down. But teams like this that open up and come at us, and the same thing will happen for Alali. Alali will need a result here. Yeah? Zamalek will need a result at home. So it will be an open game, and we give ourselves a chance with that. In rugby news, South Africa have dropped Cheetah's prop Trevor Nyagane for repeated breaches of team protocol as coach Henneke Meyer announced a 26-man touring squad to Argentina for Saturday's rugby championship test in Mendoza. The South African Rugby Union says Nyagane has been axed for ill discipline. He will be replaced by Griqua's front rower Lawrence Adrianse, one of the four new faces from the Springbok match day squad that thumped Argentina 73-13 in Johannesburg at the weekend. Also included is Kramav Pete Van Sale, who replaces Fori Dupree, the veteran Japan-based number nine, not being available for the away legs of the competition for South Africa. Finally, with tennis news, world number three Rafael Nadal overcame battling American John Isner to win his 26th Masters title. The Spaniard won 7-6, 7-6 to secure back-to-back titles following his success in Montreal last weekend. The 27-year-old Nadal saved two set points in a tight opening set and came through another tie break to seal victory and clinch his 59th career title. Nadal says this victory means a lot to him. Well, just amazing. I'm very happy for, for everything. Um, this victory means 
That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. So, recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. South Africa says its mediation role in Zimbabwe has ended, and Somalia and Kenya battle polio outbreak. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Ludo Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Charles Moyo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Mayway with Zoblazo. Petit Paris, my pedazo, my yes, is a blazo.